Kansas anymore. Are you ready? No, I'm just getting warmed up. This task was appointed to you. I said I want the truth! I say we take off and move the entire site from Dodge that. Hello and welcome back to the BBFC podcast. I'm Joe and in this episode of the podcast we're continuing our series looking at the classification categories. Last time we discussed the PG with Megan, Ben and Lucy and today we're joined by Chris, one of our compliance officers and Joe from our education team. Guys, thanks for coming along. That's great thanks to be here. Thanks for having us. Cool, so the 12 and 12A are actually the uh, youngest in terms of when they're introduced um, categories. So Chris, when did we end up with the 12? Well, if we hop in our DeLorean and head back to 1982 originally, that's when we had what we would probably like recognise as the, the current symbols uh, being first introduced. So at the time it was just a U, PG, 15 and 18. And obviously that created like a bit of a gulf in between films being rated PG and 15. Um, so you get certain examples where a material that's maybe like a little bit too strong for PG, but or maybe seemed like a little bit uh, conservative to like to go all the way up to 15. Uh, classic examples being things like you know Gremlins, Ghostbusters, Goonies, uh, other films that don't start with G. Uh, the situation was also like slightly aggravated as well because in 1984 the MPAA, the American Classification Board, uh, they introduced the PG-13 rating. Um, which meant that you know filmmakers and things could kind of target that early teen audience a little bit more now because they had a category kind of almost specifically for that kind of material. As the eighties went on, we kind of saw that you know this gulf between PG and fifteen was getting wider and wider. Uh, and so in nineteen eighty nine, we introduced the twelve rating. Uh, the first film ever to be rated twelve was Tim Burton's Batman. I remember seeing it at the cinema at the time, actually. Oh, I, I was too young. You already <laughs> I was only born earlier that year, so... Oh, no, I was just yeah. old enough to Even see it. Even at 12, it, so. I couldn't get it. <laughs> so uh, when the 12 was first uh, issued, um, it was only for cinema releases, and it wasn't um, brought out for videos until 1994, uh, which meant that there was a number of films that were, were released, uh, 12 in the cinema, um, but were then either cut for PG for video release or put up to a more cautious 15. Uh, so in the case of Batman, even though it was a 12 in the cinema, it was actually 15 on video when it first came out. And then since then, like, now we've got the 12 and the uh, the 12A, uh, we've seen a number of films that were you know cut for PG or released at, um, at 15s that have since been reclassified uh, down to 12A. So all those examples I mentioned earlier, like Gremlins, Ghostbusters and Goonies, those are now all available as 12A or 12 uh, depending on its uh, cinema or home video. In a previous podcast, our head of compliance, Craig, was saying that back in the day we actually only had two ratings, which was a U and an A. So while it does sound a bit like there's a bit of a gulf between the PG and the 15, back in the day we only had two categories anyway, so it sort of makes sense to keep introducing new ones to sort of cater for specific purposes. Um, and you mentioned 12A, which is the most recent ratings being introduced. So, Joe, um, how did the 12A come around? So it was in September 2000 we announced that um, we were considering making the 12 uh, an advisory category like the U and PG. And that mostly came about because of uh, parental feedback or complaints that there are a lot of films coming out that parents thought their children could actually cope with. Um, it was often around the release of Bond films. Um, and the argument was, well, we are better placed to know whether or not our child can cope with certain content than you know, a regulatory body are. And actually there is research to back that up because during that age period, the 
development, the emotional um, development of children does actually vary massively. Um, it's not until we get to the later teens where it starts to level off. So because of that, arguably it is parents who know their children better and they could actually decide. Um, so come 2001, we ran a pilot in Norwich. It ran for eight weeks um, where children were allowed in to see, children who were under 12 were allowed to see 12 rated films. They were called PG-12 uh, at the time. Um, and the feedback was that actually, yes, the public are up for having the 12B advisory. But that was only on condition that there was consumer advice alongside the films on the publicity material. So that consumer advice we now call ratings info. So it was conditioned that that was there that described the content of the film, but also that if their child was under 12, they had to be accompanied by an adult. Once we were satisfied that the industry was going to put this ratings info on their publicity material, um, we knew it was what the public wanted. Um, the 12A uh, came into being in August 2002. So just for the avoidance of doubt, we should be clear that 12 still exists for video and 12A is exclusively for cinema. That's, that's correct, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, essentially because... Um, the that the twelve A rule that you have to be accompanied by an adult can be enforced in a cinema. So the cinema staff can enforce that. Uh, actually, in fact, if they don't, then there's a risk of them losing their license. Mm -hmm. So it exists for uh, cinema releases. That same rule can't be enforced uh, in the home. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we have twelve A exclusively for cinema releases, and the twelve stays for uh, physical releases, DVD, Blu-ray, and uh, online streaming. Sure, sure. So, of course, I mentioned Batman earlier, which was the first 12 I saw in the cinema. But um, what was the first 12A or 12 that you saw in the cinema, Chris? Oh, in the cinema, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think now. Um, I remember for my 12th birthday, I got a copy of Wild Wild West on video, oh, really? on VHS, uh, because that was a 12. Uh, yeah, it was a present for my brother to, to commemorate turning 12. Well, that's cool. And no, I've still not seen that one, actually. So, Joe, how about you? Well, in 2002, when 12A came in, I was I was already 19, so I never had to be you know, taken to uh, a 12A, as it was. But I guess I guess for me, because of Spider-Man in 2002, and all the subsequent um, superhero films that there've been, that on the most part, you know, it's only a couple of exceptions like Venom and Deadpool. They come in at 12A, so Captain Marvel, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, Avengers Endgame, Infinity War, Wonder Woman, all come in at, at 12A. So I, whilst I can't remember my, the first 12A that I saw, uh, you know, for me, you know, 12A and the superhero films are, you know, are, are so closely linked. Like It defines it for me. That's a big one for uh, my oldest niece as well. Uh, she's 12 now, but uh, she's been going to the Marvel films and Star Wars films and things for a few years. And I think uh, yeah, one of my proudest moments one time is uh, I was babysitting and started talking to her in and she said, like, Uncle Chris, you know, Mummy, she doesn't like A-Team, she doesn't like Indiana Jones, she doesn't like James Bond, she doesn't like Marvel films, she doesn't like any of the good things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and actually, Chris, I'm talking about 12A, um, I've got to ask, how many times did you see Force Awakens? Uh, including here or just in general? Uh, well, just, just in time. Well, when it was in cinemas. Uh, seven. Seven. Altogether. That's not bad. I, only managed, I managed four, so I'm not too far behind you. <laughs> so, of course, we've mentioned the first 12 in the cinema, which is Batman, but what was the first 12A? 
contrary to popular belief, it wasn't Sam Raimi's uh, Spider-Man that was the first 12A. It was actually the Bourne Identity. That had the ratings in info of moderate violence and infrequent strong language. Um, the reason why a lot of people make that connection between you know the first 12A and Spider-Man, and it is a, a significant example, but it's because... Um, when Spider-Man was released, there was um, a lot of you know publicity and merchandise surrounding it that was aimed at really young children. So you had lots of kids who were really looking forward to the film. They were buying all the toys, all the posters. And then when the film came out and was released uh, and it was a 12, uh, not only were they upset that they couldn't go and watch it, but their parents were as well. So there was uh, a lot of feedback around that, but we did... You know, be stuck to our guns, and that was there was a twelve. Um, however, a few months later, the twelve A was uh, introduced, and the distribution companies decided to re-release Spider Man. So it did come out again with the twelve A rating. Sure. Now, obviously, um, Spider Man was eventually a twelve A, and and. And many comic book films, um, superhero films, are rated at 12A and 12, um, but also films like the Bond films as well. Why do films like this get a lower rating than films that might show more realistic content? Um, well, it kind of varies in things. Like we often say like context is key. And one of the big things that we get with a lot of comic book movies is they're kind of set in this very heightened, fantastical world. You know, we think of the colourful costumes and the superpowers and the way that people can endure an awful lot more than a normal human could. Uh, so we see some of these kind of, you know, bigger, more explosive action sequences, people being like thrown through walls and all this kind of stuff. And most viewers kind of recognise that this is kind of separated from reality. So a lot of the things that like you might think of, like the Marvel films, um, which are kind of quite commonly now 12A, similar with all of the more recent Star Wars films. Um, but there's still like certain cases where, even in a comic book film, you know, some of this kind of violence can be slightly more uh, kind of gritty and harder edged. So a classic example being The Dark Knight. Um, and often, like, you know, viewers in, uh, at 12A, they kind of maybe take younger children who might be kind of slightly caught out by some of this material. Um, another you know, famous example is uh, Casino Royale, the James Bond film, uh, where coming off the back of some of the previous ones, like the Pierce Brosnan series, uh, Casino Royale was quite a big step up from that in terms of presenting a more kind of gritty, harder-edged, real-world kind of violence. But at the same time, it's still a Bond film. It's still kind of that known quantity. So audiences kind of go to a lot of these films with a certain expectation of what kind of violence and things they're going to see. So in the case of Ferguson Royale, you know, we've got moments of torture, but we kind of know that Bond's going to escape, he's going to get out of it. And you know, with The Dark Knight, you know, although the Joker's this quite kind of terrifying, intimidating character, we still kind of know at the end of the day that you know, Batman's probably going to triumph and probably going to get out of this. So uh, there is a certain amount of mitigation within these films that allows them to maybe kind of go a little bit further and show a little bit more over-the-top violence than something like a real-world thriller um, or a war film, which might show like quite gritty and you know graphic violence sure i mean it's certainly the case isn't it that bond um, in casino royale he does have quite an eventful poker game so at one point his heart stops <laughs> you know and yet he's back at the table about 20 minutes later so you know what i mean he, can, he does seem to be able to shrug off stuff that most superheroes would as well so he's he's got that sort of superhero vibe to him even if he isn't an out and out superhero you know absolutely yeah yeah i guess it's worth mentioning as well that you know, a lot of parents do tell us that not only they but their their children as well can quite easily make that distinction between uh, a fantasy world and, and the real world. And if that's the case, and like Chris said, it does remove that 
that that it could happen to me effect um, and it's really easy for for kids to do that mm-hmm. and you know most some people might not not think that's the case but if you do have uh, a character with with magical powers and there are, are lasers and, and and whatnot going on that they can quite easily remove that from uh, from the real world real world and that that does lessen the impact and the severity of the classification issues. Sure, it's very different to a suburban UK street that we exactly. walk down every yeah, day. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. So if it's not a superhero film and it is based in the real world, what are the sort of mitigating factors you might look for in a film? Um, I mean, I guess that would depend on the classification issue that, that we're looking at. But if we were to take something like... Um, discrimination let's say we take a a film like like green book so green book does have discriminatory behavior and language within it so that that's the key classification issue um but whether or not that gets a 12a will mostly depend on how strongly the film overall condemns that language and that behavior so in green book for example there is you know there's some really explicit scenes of uh, discriminatory behaviour. So there's one, for example, where Tony, played by Viggo Mortensen, he he picks up two glasses that two um, black men have drunk from, and he puts them in the bin. Um, so in isolation, that's a that's a really strong scene. But take that, you know, don't isolate it and look at the the film as a whole. The mitigator there is the fact that to, the narratively that message that behaviour is condemned by characters around them uh, and because of that we can contain it within within 12a so you know you leave the cinema and the overall message is what he did was was not okay um, and that's quite important for 12a sure so i suppose if that action hadn't been condemned you might be looking at a higher category exactly uh, yeah the, the idea being the viewers of that age group might more easily understand what's going on and know that's wrong yeah they have that that further uh, maturity and uh, emotional intelligence to, to to understand that where younger viewers uh, slightly more impressionable could see that behavior uh, and and think that's okay Sure. Something like you know, similar to that as well is uh, the kind of historical context to these things. So, uh, you know, like with Green Book or films like Suffragette or Selma, um, by placing them very kind of clearly in this historical context where you know, it was during kind of you know, civil rights or you know, fight, uh, women's rights, um, instances of violence in these films, although like visually they're kind of relatively discreet, they still carry kind of quite a tonal impact. Um, but the films as a whole kind of are presenting these very inspiring historical stories. There's a certain amount of like educational merit to the films as well. Uh, and as Joe said, they kind of they're very much condemning any kind of you know, prejudice or discrimination. Yeah, and these films are very clearly like condemning these kind of discriminatory or prejudicial attitudes as well. Though. So do misguiding factors like historical settings uh, apply to other category defining issues as well? Uh, potentially, yeah. So like quite a good example of this was the King's Speech. So at 12A. Uh, one use of the F word will always like you know guarantee you a 12A. Kind of what are the the other factors and things in the film, uh, and generally at the kind of 12A 12 level, um, we allow about four to six uses generally of strong language, but they come in two very short outbursts within the context of speech therapy. Um, so within again this kind of historical context, this um, example of someone coming overcoming a, a disability. Uh, it's quite an inspiring story about them you know, being able to do this. Uh, it was felt that within this context there was room to allow a few more uses uh, compared to something where maybe there's you know, a lot more uses or it's normalised or they're used in an aggressive or sexual context. That you know, might be something that would take the work to 15 instead. 
And I suppose it's true in the guidelines, isn't it, that we say that language should be infrequent. Yeah. And I suppose that's deliberately, I don't want to say vague, but deliberately imprecise so you can take these sort of contextual um, situations into account. Yeah, in almost every kind of thing that we look at, we always say like context is key. Uh, so, you know, viewing the film as it or you know episode or something or whatever work that we're viewing, like viewing it in its entirety and kind of weighing up all the kind of different merits and things that it has. It's an interesting example as well because like that that scene you mentioned in the the speech therapy, I think there's something like 17 uses of of strong language. So you know how can we describe 17 uses as infrequent? Um, we can't really, but that's where there's that that flexibility because of context in the guidelines. So it's actually much easier for us to defend King's Speech at 12a than it is at 15 because of the, the mitigation of, of that context that, that Chris just described. Mm-hmm. And this is also you know, why we have uh, the long-form ratings info, which is like, available on our app and our, on the BBFC website, um, so we can really kind of define some, you know, what this content is, what context it occurs in, uh, and really kind of inform and empower parents or guardians and things to know what's in a film and make the best choice that they can as to whether or not they're going to take their kids to see it. So one issue we haven't covered yet is drug misuse at 12A. Um, how do we deal with that? Uh, well, a good recent example of that is actually Judy, the uh, Renee Zellweger starring Judy Garland biopic, in that the film uh, explores the, uh, the singer's kind of later life uh, and really kind of uh, looks at her dependency on prescription uh, medication. Um, and across the course of the film, things we see how damaging uh, using these uh, medications things has been on her health, on her ability to sleep, her general well-being, uh, as well as her ability to perform as well. Um, so across the course of the film, there's like a clear anti-drugs message. In terms of like the actual drug misuse itself, is relatively discreetly depicted. Uh, and the film as a whole, like you know, it doesn't promote kind of drug misuse at all. Um, again, it's kind of like put within this kind of very specific historical context in the life of this particular person. Um, and with hindsight as well, there's kind of clear warnings as to you know, the eventual effect that this kind of life uh, had on Judy. OK, great. Well, thank you very much, Chris and Joe, for guiding us through the 12 and 12A ratings. Um, don't forget that if you want to get in touch with us to ask us to speak about a particular film or issue on the podcast, you can do that by emailing podcast at bbfc.co.uk. Or if you want to get in touch with us via Twitter, you can tweet to us at bbfc.